For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Oh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. And Holy Spirit, anoint me to instruct, and so that our hearts will be inflamed with the power of your word. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs> well, good to see everybody. It's the third Sunday of Lent. Are you sick of Lent yet? No, that's not so bad. Let me tell you how I feel. Meager. Defeated. Flummoxed. It's a good word. Ready to give up. Or as I heard someone say this week, as if someone were hurling bricks at me. Now these are just some of the ways you might describe how you could feel, hypothetically, <laughs> when you're confronted with the reality of your sin. When you're confronted with the knowledge of the brokenness that not only you've partaken in, but it's just become second nature to you. It's, it's become habitual. Certainly, these words describe my experience the last few weeks. But knowledge of our sin is only the first step for those of us who are, as St. Paul said, being saved. I hope you took note of that, the present active tense of that verb. Because for those of us who are being saved, knowing our sin is the first step. And then the kindness of God leads us to repentance. He lets us see our sin. He lets us know that they are absolved. They're removed from us as far as the east is from the west so that we will know how great is the love that God has lavished on us. And because salvation is a process, we can rejoice in these moments of awakening as painful as they may be, as defeating as they may be. Because God uses these moments to refine us and draw us into repentance. He softens us with His divine love. I know my own self-righteousness gets cut out at the knees every time I see the reality of who I am and my tendencies. But not only are we led to repentance, not only are we softened by His divine love, but He deepens us in faith along the way. That's all part of the process of being saved. That's just an exhortation for you before I get into the real meat of the sermon tonight. But I hope that you're experiencing pain 
this Lent, not, not because I'm a mean person <laughs> or I think you deserve it, but because if we see the depth of our need for mercy, as we said in the prayer of confession, miserable offenders, we're not trying to tell ourselves we're miserable. We're telling ourselves we're in need of mercy. It comes from that Latin, miserere, have mercy on me, Lord. When we see that and experience that pain, God says, now you're ready to move through this because you are being saved. And my tendency for 20 some odd years, 25 years, has been to see, oh, I am sinful, and oh my gosh, and I just stay there like it's a resort or something. And I never leave, forgetting that I've been forgiven, forgetting that this is a process, that you don't win life in one day, that life has actually already been won, not just with a glorious resurrection, but as we will see today with a terrifying, excruciating death, even the etymology of that word, excruciating, from the cross, excruciate. Our life comes from the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. So briefly, I want to talk about three different things that I see in these lessons, and then I want to tell you a story. Well, two things, and then I want to tell you a story. Who knows what I'll say? It's always a surprise. The first thing is that the cross is central. If you had any doubts about the cross in the life of the Christian, if you had any doubts about the cross in the life of the church, if you had any doubts about the cross in Holy Scripture, Paul puts your wearied minds at ease by saying, it's all about the cross. We can imagine says Anthony Thistleton, a Bible scholar, that Paul was speaking to this church at Corinth who was a church of great power. And in polite company, the company of maybe public dignitaries, political representatives, you didn't mention things like the Roman cross. It was foolishness or folly to the wisdom. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. But Paul says, but for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And when Paul talks about power, it's not so much that he's going to wow us with tall buildings like a big temple that took 46 some odd years for Herod the Great to build. Or great wealth that maybe Herod used to build his own special port city of Caesarea up the coast. But Paul uses the word power in its effectiveness and that it does something. So the cross is central. Jesus, in his anachronistic uh, cleansing of the temple, I say anachronistic because in the synoptic gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we call those the synoptics because they follow the general synopsis, the same general flow. But John, total rebel, leather jacket and all, John doesn't follow that same timeline. In fact, John has Jesus being crucified on a different day. And we'll see, if you follow John's history and the history of John's disciples, there were some disagreements for a few centuries. But John has Jesus cleansing the temple in the second chapter of his gospel. First, he performs 
a miracle, a sign of his power and of his glory at a wedding in a kosher setting, in a place safe and familiar with Jews. And then he goes to the ultimate kosher setting, to the temple. And Jesus cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers, the people who are there doing the right thing. They had to be there. Not everybody had a, an ox or a pigeon to bring. It was off to the side of the courts of the temple along what I believe is the southern wall. And he said, get out of here. My father's house is not to be a house of trade. Be assured that this episode is all about the death of Jesus. It's all about the death of Jesus. Because the disciples will remember two things. They'll remember that A, oh yeah, Psalm 69 says, they probably didn't say it like that, but they'll remember that Psalm 69 says, zeal for your house will consume me. It's, kind of, it's a pun, or it has a double meaning. The zeal for the house of God consumes Jesus, so much so that he makes a, a whip, drives them out. But zeal for the house of God, the people of God, will literally consume him on the cross that is foolishness to the wise to the Greeks and a scandal to the Jews. But for us, it's the power of God for those who are being saved. Let me tell you why else this passage tells us that the cross is central. Notice the very first descriptor that John says. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews? John, aren't you a Jew? It's our Passover. Right? John sees and knows that the cross has become the Passover. That the event of Exodus, where God performed miracles and signs and wonders, ten plagues, and the, the tenth of which would culminate in the destruction of the firstborn of everyone who didn't have the blood of this Passover lamb over their doorpost. John says that Passover prefigured this Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it's at the Passover of the Jews, not the Passover, or what John's disciples and much of the church would later, and still some, call it Pascha. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. This cross is central. So much so that it's a dividing point. The cross indicates where we are in relationship to God. Taking both of these passages. Paul says for those who are perishing, a process, for those who are perishing, it is foolishness. It's not worth our time. It's not worth our effort. Who in John chapter 2 is in a process of perishing? Well, the Jews. After Jesus makes the whip, of course, do you, do you like my, <laughs> I keep doing this motion like I'm, I have a whip. After Jesus drives them out of the temple, the Jews, in their own way of seeking, I don't think they were saber rattling or anything, they were saying, what sign do you have for this action? Prove that you can do this. Show us 
that you have the authority to do this. But we know that the Jews would not believe. You see, in John's Gospel, you are either of the light and moving toward the light. Think about the woman that Jesus meets at the well in a non-kosher setting. John chapter 4. She comes to Jesus at the middle of the day. But Nicodemus, John chapter 3, comes to Jesus at night. Though he's seeking, he comes to him at night. So the Jews... For them, the cross is foolishness because they are perishing. Because they are not ones who remembered that the Scripture said, zeal for your house will consume me. They are not ones who realized, oh, he's speaking not about the temple, but about his body and remembered and believed. But the disciples were ones who were those who were being saved. We are told to be saved. We've been preached at to be saved. I remember remember one of our friends had a shirt that said, you know, some dumb rhetorical question, and on the back it said, get saved. And I remember I thought, well, that's just, how do you just like get saved? Friends, there is a moment where we can say yes to Christ But be sure, it is a process of being saved. Maybe you've heard it in the terms of you're justified, you're sanctified, and you will be glorified. But when we baptize a little baby, we're initiating them into the life of the church, and the church is the body of people who are being saved. It's the body of people who lift up this cross and say, this is the sign of the power of God. Because of the sins that I keep committing, the brokenness that I inevitably live in and wallow in, it's not the final story because of the cross. Because the cross is the power of God to lift me out of the mire, to set my feet upon a rock and put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise unto our God, the psalmist says. So the Jews were those who were being saved. How do we know? Excuse me, not the Jews. The disciples, who were also Jewish, mind you. But see the differentiation here. And this is not anti-Semitism. This is telling us who is believing in Jesus and who is not. I love Jews. I've been mistaken for one several times. It's fun. The disciples are those who are being saved. And we know that because John, writing after the fact... Down the line, John says, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. There was something about that moment. And they knew the scriptures. They imbibed the scriptures. They knew the power of scripture. And for them, the scriptures were the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The wisdom literature. They did not have the New Testament yet. So when you see the word scriptures with a capital S in the New Testament, it's talking about the Old Testament. Not only that, do they know and remember that the scripture said, zeal for your house will consume me, but they remembered, they remembered what Jesus said about the temple. Verse 19, Jesus answered them when they asked for a sign. Here's a sign. 
destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, hey, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Now listen to John's little commentary here. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Both the Jews and the disciples were seeking. What sign do you show us for this? The Jews said, seeking. The disciples watching in amazement while their rabbi does this off-the-wall crazy stuff. Chill, Jesus, you're going to get us kicked out of the temple. Can you imagine the confusion that they must have been experiencing? But to them, the cross was the power of God as they began to realize more and more and more that this rabbi was not just a rabbi, but was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Because they remembered that he was speaking of his body and they believed. Now, Friday morning. Friday's my day off. I love Fridays. I love my kids and they're at school on Fridays. And they're learning and they're becoming strong, growing in wisdom and stature. And this Friday morning, we had some doctor's appointments or whatever. And I get, I get home and I'm so excited. I get out my prayer book and it's Lent and I'm reading the Psalms. And I read the Psalms in the old uh, Coverdale translation. So from like the 1928 prayer book. And I'm reading Psalm 9. And let me read this to you. Psalm 9 has always pierced me. I remember reading it in college and just thinking, gosh... This is so powerful. But this verse, I don't know what verse it is, but in Psalm 9 it says, And they that know thy name, speaking of God, they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, hast never failed them that seek thee. And as I read that verse in Psalm 9, I was struck because it reminded me of the disciples in John chapter 2. They didn't know all the details. They didn't know the plan of salvation. They saw Jesus and they trusted him. They believed in him. They grew to love him. And I tell you this story to illustrate the power of Scripture. It's not unlike what the disciples experienced when they remembered. Do you remember that time when Jesus, a couple of years ago, before he was crucified, do you remember when he took that whip of cords? And he drove them all out of the temple. That's just like Psalm 69. Maybe they were saying it in their daily prayers in the morning or evening. But me, just sitting in my living room around laundry and with my dog, reading Psalm 9 because on the second day of the month, that's one of the psalms that you read, it hit me. Bam! The disciples were these. They that know thy name put their trust in thee because they seek after you. Guys, Scripture is powerful. It is God's Word written. And in this season of Lent, where we have self-examination, where we remember how broken we are, there's a reason that on Ash Wednesday I said, join me in reading and meditating upon God's Holy Word. Because when we are stuck in a ditch... Because when we're confused about what the rabbi is doing with those 
cords, making them into a whip. Well, we don't understand what, God, are you doing in this situation? Why are you driving these things out of me? Scripture will remind us of the goodness of God. Scripture will remind us that His kindness leads us to repentance. Scripture will call to mind that the cross isn't foolishness. That as Christians, we're not just these triumphant, arrogant people with hubris marching around, beating our chests. But there is very much a brokenness to us. Scripture will call it to our minds. Its power, like the cross, and in the words of Paul, is effective. So my question for you tonight is this. Questions. What are the things that you keep bumping up against? Where you keep saying, God, help me. I need your help in this, this area. I'm so sick of sinning in this blank. Or I'm so sick of not trusting you this way. What is it that the risen Christ, with His whip of cords, is trying to drive out of the temple? How is He trying to get your attention? You may not know that. I pray that He gives you clarity over these next few weeks. But secondly, will you so read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Word of God so that you can be enlightened? So that you can have context for what was Jesus doing in this confusing moment? And it seemed enigmatic. And I'm not really sure why he gave me this vision that he gave me. But whatever. Because you will receive context for it. God will give you clarity for it. It's power. Because it's the word of God breathed out by God is effective. Its power comes from the cross. It enlivens it. It makes it real. And friends, when we come to this holy table, it's a table of victory. It's a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. The, the banquet that all the, those who are resurrected unto life will participate in. But that banquet does not happen without a lamb who is slain. It's a mystery. It's almost like a rending. Death and life coming together in this Mystery of all mysteries. The sacrament of sacraments. But as you come to the table tonight, remember that the cross is powerful and effective. Remember that you are one who is being saved. That it's a process. And remember that the Lord wants to speak to you over and over and over again. Let us pray. God, we love you. Forgive us for our obstinacy, for our thick-headedness, for our calloused hearts, <laughs> for being slow to learn. Forgive us for being quick to speak and quick to become angry. We pray You, Lord, to cleanse us once again. Lord, to receive from You, not only in Your Holy Word, but in Your Holy Sacrament, the sacrament of Your cross and resurrection, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all this in His name.
Amen.